Luke 2, verse 8. Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Pray with me, would you please? We want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of what you've done already tonight and the beauty that we've seen in in all forms of artistry. And we pray that as we continue just in a moment to take a look at your word, that this would be the most meaningful consideration of Christmas we've ever had, the most biblical certainly the most profound for us. So we pray that this time would be perfect time spent. And God, I pray for myself. Lord, I know that you want to do more here than just, than just have me speak. You want to minister. You want to perform therapy. You want to encourage and strengthen. So please do that. And I pray now that you would do something so beautiful that every one of us can only say hallelujah. And thank you, Lord. So we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any night, now that I'm aware of the fact that it's night, please don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let them have final say. It's been 2,000 years. 2,000 years ago, roughly, a man was called out of the wilderness, or I should say, out of the land of Ur. And God made a promise that through his seed, the entire world would be blessed. This man, at the end of his life, 175 years, would wind up marrying another woman named Keturah. 
And from this woman, children would be born after this miracle baby waiting 25 years. And he would give these children gifts and send them to the east. 1,500 years ago, roughly, it was Moses that would watch God come down and show his love. Abraham saw God come down and show his love by calling him out of the world he known. And now Moses had seen God come down as he said, I've heard their cries, I've seen their anguish, and I know their pain. And he came down to deliver. And that was roughly 1,500 years ago. A thousand years ago, it was David who would watch God love him and through his son build a house and make the promise that this would be the place where God would set his eyes upon and he would make himself approachable and findable there. That was roughly a thousand years ago. Roughly 700 years ago. Well, I should say, and Solomon would write a song we will look at for a moment, or at least a bit of. Roughly 700 years ago, it would be Isaiah who would prophesy that this God that would come down, or has come down, would come down, but this time in a very touchable, tangible, physical way, like a man, serving men and dying for their sins, taking upon himself the sin of all mankind. And we continue to chase it from generation to generation. 600 Ezekiel, who says that God himself will come down and shepherd his people. Roughly 500 years prior, Roughly 400 years prior, there would be the end of what we know of the spoken time of God, where many would call 400 years of silence. We've seen God's son cause the sun to stand still at the Valley of Ajalon. We've watched God part the waters of both the Red Sea and the Jordan. We've watched God rain down hail. We've watched Him disturb and distress the enemy until they turn their swords upon themselves. And in each time God comes down, He comes down to deliver. He comes down to love. He comes down to save. But things have been different for 400 years. We haven't heard Him. We haven't seen Him like we had before. Where are those stories? Where is that God of miracles? Where is that God that we expected to come down and perform such powerful things? 40 years before this, it's Herod that had been now actually appointed by, by Mark Antony. 20 years later, which would put it 20 years before this, he would begin the building project. And as he begins the building project, he becomes more and more and more paranoid. His children would be born Antipas, who will ultimately wind up ruling the area of Galilee. Jesus will stand before him as a grown man. Archelaus I'm also born to the same Samaritan woman, Malthus, Philip to Cleopatra of Jerusalem. And that's when things start to get ugly. Oh, they've always been strange, but not like this. Because after that, Herod starts to recognize that the greatest foes may be in his own household. Six years ago, less than six years ago, he will drown Aristobulus, forbidding anyone from weeping over him at, the, at his funeral. He'll actually kill the high priest, the high priest and replace him with a son-in-law of his own. He'll kill 45 wealthy aristocrats and his own wife. 
and his son's mother-in-law and brother-in-law, all in a frantic rage. I should say frantic rage. Boy, I hope my mouth catches up with me soon. In a frantic rage of, of paranoia, fearing that someone may take his throne. And while all of this is happening, God is setting things up and the stage is being set. Babylonians had come and gone and had given the world a, a global mindset, something they had not had prior to this. And then the Greeks had come and given the world a common language so the whole world could speak one language. Though they had their own indigenous languages, we could speak the common trade language, Koine Greek. And then after that, it would be the Romans who would pave the known world, that would port the known world. And all of a sudden, now everything, the stage has been set, the props are in place, everything is right where it wants to be, and God is now choosing this time to come down. The craziest part is how. The roads would be paved, the ports would be built, and it would only take one language to get the gospel to the entire world, thanks to unbelievers who God had used to prepare the stage for this moment. There is so much of this Christmas story, I would guarantee you that the majority, I would say well over 50% of what we envision in our heads is not necessarily scriptural. Oh, we know Jesus couldn't have been born in a barn, for goodness sakes. It wasn't like Jesus was born in, Pen in Pennsylvania, in Amish County. But of course we picture he must be there in a cave, but find that in Scripture. We see him there somewhere between the ox and the lambs, somehow lowing, but it's a silent night, with the little drummer boy by his side. That makes no sense to me. And the kings... Three of them, each with a name, none of them in Scripture, presenting the three gifts. We know they're plural, so that's at least two. There could have been 15, there could have been 20, there could have been two. Three gifts we know, they're there in text. And I find it interesting, the more we get into what's simply said, the more profound it becomes. And all of a sudden you realize how few Christmas songs we could sing in confidence. We don't know who, how many kings are, that kind of thing. In chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18, as it's been read, the birth of Jesus started this way, and at least it's listed in Matthew, focusing on the father, focusing on Joseph, the stepfather, if you will, or the, the father, well, you get it. His betrothed, it says, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, no way, we, we don't have to develop that. Everyone gets the idea. It doesn't matter how pure the girl is. The moment she says she's pregnant and God did it, no one's going to believe her. But it becomes difficult because now we have some text in Deuteronomy chapter 22, Deuteronomy in 24, about what happens when a woman is betrothed. She is as legally married as anyone would be, but there's one thing it takes to, to actually officially be married, and that's the two have to be physically together. Now, consider that for a moment, because what we'll learn from this is that Jesus was born to unwed parents, at least legally unwed parents. Now, that's something, by the way, to be able to present to somebody who comes from a broken family. They're betrothed, and as a woman is pregnant in betrothal, not to her husband, that puts her in a place now where there are three options. One option is to flee town with her, which, by the way, isn't a legal option. You're running from the law. The two legal options are, the most common, drag the girl out and stone her in front of everyone to remove that 
evil from your area. Now understand, that is the most common. The husband-to-be would be the first one to throw the stone. Her family would then be the next group to throw the stone. And then after them, the rest of the neighboring community with the idea that we want this evil out of our neighborhood. We disagree with this type of behavior. Or you could choose the more merciful route of having her exiled. According to this text, it says, Joseph, verse 19, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, I can't help but think of Micah 6, 8, where it tells us what the Lord really requires of us to do justly and to love mercy. Here it appears as if the two are actually hand in hand. And someone in this, God says, look, this is a just man because this just man has no intent in stoning this woman. We don't read here that he loves her. We, can, we tend to think that way because we're raised on Disney. But in the Middle East, the idea is you commit yourself and love follows. Now, you've committed yourself and then a baby follows. Well, that's a little bit out of order here. And in all of this, we read, though, that he was a just man because the guy really wanted mercy out of this situation. And he just sought to put her away secretly. Now, of his two legal options, he chooses the one most merciful, which is... I need you to flee town. I'm going to legally let you flee town. I'm not going to have you killed. But while he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, which tells us, by the way, that Joseph was acting out of fear. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son. You will call his name Yehoshua. God the Savior. And this becomes our first title in all of the New Testament of who this baby is going to be, God the Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. And here becomes our first problem when we start dealing with Jesus. Because what we're going to find is there are going to be four basic reactions to this person. The first of them, by the way, from Joseph and from Mary, and that is simply obedience. As we start to see here, what do we do with this child? We do what God's told us to. In this case, Joseph has the consign himself in obedience to God to a life of mockery. Hear that again. Joseph has to consign himself to a life of mockery and and understand what people are going to say. The same thing they're going to say to you. Oh, come on. Do you really believe that fairy tale? You really believe that? What kind of person really believes that a woman could could have a baby without a man? Come on now. That's so against science. I thought you were educated. Clearly the scientific community couldn't possibly agree with this. You believe in what? And let's be honest. Let's be honest. If you believe this book as I do, the world has a right to think we're nincompoops. Unless it be that we're true. In which we are, by the way. I mean, let's say, because here's the idea. I believe in someone I can't see that lived 2,000 years ago, about 6,000 miles away, but he talks to me now, and I'm not actually that weird about this, but he talks to me still. He died, but he rose again, and we get to have communication with him, and I love him prof- profoundly, I love him, but I'm not really that type of guy, but I do love him, and he's up in the sky, and he's building me a place, and he's going to come back and suck me into the sky, and we're going to be all this to kind of get together, and he's I'm just waiting for him in any given moment, could be right now, oh, is that it? I think I hear the trumpet, and now how does that not sound weird? Let's be honest. How can it not sound weird? And so a person kind of looks at you, blinks a couple of times and realizes, do you really believe that craziness? Of course we believe that craziness because it's true. 
But try to explain to someone 200 years ago that you're going to get up in a big piece of metal and it's going to fly in the air and it's going to take you to another place called America. Actually, try that 400 years ago. People will say, there isn't even a place over there. You're going to fall off the end of the paper chip that we call this thing the world. You go, no, 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 it's round. No, it's not round. We all know it's flat and you're going to fly off the edge of it. And you're going to, in a can, you're going to roll, you're going to wind up in the water. I mean, think about how crazy that would be. Think about it was like 50 years ago to say you couldn't buy or sell without actually using something outside of cash. I mean, today, there are places that actually say, what's that? And you're like, that's actually a 10-pound note. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this an antique you're trying to sell me? I mean, you're like, funny, it's still supposed to work, isn't it? And I'd like you to consider the fact that Joseph is consigning himself to a world of mockery because of his obedience to God. Because what he's doing, listen, listen, what he's doing is he's putting himself right in the middle of a miracle. And miracles defy science. Miracles defy logic. Because if they did... If they, can, if they were actually adjacent to those things, it wouldn't be a miracle anymore. And God is right in the middle of a miracle. So are you, by the way, because God is transforming you and making you a new creation. And the world's going to look at that and go, I don't get this. This is against science. This is against reason. This is against logic. And you go, of course it is, because I'm actually in the middle of a miracle here. And a miracle can't be something you can just explain away. I've tried this and this and this and this, and I was addicted the whole time and couldn't get away from that. I was the kind of person I even hated. I wanted to run from me. I wanted to go find myself. I wasn't there and I left. And when I finally found myself, it was the worst thing that could happen. And I couldn't run away from him. And then God killed him and made me someone new. You realize there's no part of a miracle that's going to make sense, and you're right in the middle of one. And so with that then, God says, look at this is more than just a special child that just was immaculately conceived. This is the Savior of the world. And that puts Mary and Joseph in a strange place because Mary's about to give birth to a baby that's going to save her. She's going to give birth to a child that created everything that she sees around her. And I wonder what that would be like to actually walk around and think before they, before they move, what kind of accommodations do you think God would give you if you were carrying God's baby? If you were carrying God? I'm sure I had all kinds of ideas about how that one was going to play out, but I guarantee you none of them would be as we see here. So this was all done, what might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, to the, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And all of a sudden, we've moved 700 years prior to Isaiah 7, where God makes very clear that this is going to be more than a good teacher or a miracle worker or a kind man, someone to follow and reason. This is going to be God in the flesh. And you're not going to call him nice guy, great teacher. You're going to call him God's with us. And I look at every time God says he's with us and I see him delivering, I see him transforming, I see him set free. And I realize that what God told us here is this is exactly what his mission is here. He's going to deliver you from your sins. Why my sins? Because Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. And because John 8.34, Jesus tells us whoever sins is a slave to that sin. We need to be set free from it. And yet in Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned from our sin. I need, to be, I need to be set free from the penalty of that sin. And I need to be set free from the power of that sin. And this one baby is going to come forth. And this baby is going to deliver me from all of those things. And God says, yes, that's exactly it. You got it. And you go, I don't think I got it. And that becomes the beauty and the wonder of this miracle. 
And so she brought forth, brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus, just as it was. But notice it says, by the way, in verse 25, he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. God makes really clear that they were not officially married because they hadn't consummated the marriage until Jesus was born. Now flip with me to Luke chapter 1 for a moment, would you please? We're putting a little bit of this in order. And actually, we'll go right to 2. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who, by the way, <clears throat> well, he was, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Um, it went out unto the world till they should be registered. Now stop. I bet this probably wasn't in your plan as you expected God to do something amazing. You're right in the middle of a miracle. And right in the middle of a miracle, government makes some form, passes some form of judgment that just makes absolutely no sense for the moment. So let me ask you a question. The idea of it's simple, you tax by your area of nationality. So let's just say that there was a ruler over the world right now. There isn't, other than God, but just let's just say there was. And he was to say, look, you're going to need to be taxed. You need to be brought back to the place that you were actually, that you came from, your nationality. So let me ask you something. Where would that be? Go ahead and bark it out. Where, I mean, when they say, what race, what nationality are you, what do you say? Okay, he says Californian. Okay, okay. Go ahead, what else? Jamaican? What else? Swedish? All right. Eng English? Okay. Jewish? Which we'll call that Israel. Where else? Finnish? Where else? Any, anywhere else? Come on, we got other things. Indian? What's that? Go on. Go on. Uh, I mean, who else? Come on, we've got other things here. Ghanis? Or Ghanaian, I'm sorry. What's that? Hong Kong. Hong Kong, okay. Hong Kong. Do, do, we, do we dare say Chinese? Do we dare say that? Okay. I don't want to get myself in trouble with that. Um, okay, what if it were? I mean, what if it were in a moment like this? Let's just put yourself in that situation. And all of a sudden, someone makes the decree. Remember, it's just as inconvenient it is for you as it would be for them. In a situation of you going there, and he goes, all right, you need to go back to your nationality. Strangely enough, I'd actually probably wind up not very far from here. But where would that be? Suzanne might wind up, where would you be? Part of you would be in Germany. Part of you might be in France. I'm not sure, sure how that works out. That's the thing about America. Maybe what they'll do is, if you're roughly purebred, you go back to your nationality. If you're kind of a mutt, go to America. That's kind of how that'll work out, right? We really don't know what to call you, so we'll call you American. I mean, I mean, think about it. But what would it be like all of a sudden? Here you are. Now, according to this, by the way, a man is supposed to go, but because he's betrothed now, he's required to take his wife. Now, think about this, how God actually does something to bless them in this, because what this does, if nothing else, is it gets Mary out of the neighborhood where everybody's still talking about this whole she's pregnant from God thing. Now she has to go to a new community. And in that new community, he has, she has to go back with him to Bethlehem, which, by the way, for what it's worth, is roughly 100 to 120 kilometers away. Now, again, we're not in a car going there. And it's, it's, it's the case is for you actually to be taxed. And it says in Luke 2, by the way, this didn't even happen until Quirinius was governor. Now, the reason I say that is Quirinius actually won't be governor until, chapter, until about 6 AD, which means they're going to have to go there and stay there for a while waiting for this taxation. They're actually going to be there, and according to what appears in the text, it actually doesn't look like they're ever really going to be taxed while they're still there. Because they're going to spend their time fleeing. 
Now, for whatever it's worth, and it says then, so they went up to Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, because that's, of course, where he came from, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there. Now, notice the way it's written in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Why is that important? Because in the language, it does not appear as if Joseph just showed up, everything was still full, and he couldn't get a place in. What it appears is if they were there for a period of time, while they were there, it was time for her to have a baby, and they still didn't have a place to stay. Which, by the way, it's, it's one thing to read this and kind of get the idea that Joseph's really trying to be a good guy, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be Joseph. And you're there with, a, with, your, with this gal that you've committed yourself to, knowing you're responsible for her, and actually not being able to give her a place to stay. You know what? God's working in this. Hear me out on this. God's working on this in a way that was so humbling to all of us because we couldn't get all of it. We couldn't figure all this out. I mean, you'd go, come on, God, for sure. By this point, you'd be in the Hilton, wouldn't you? I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all. Or does it? Verse 7, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. Now let me ask you a question. According to these verses, where was Jesus born? We really don't know. We don't have a cave. We certainly don't have a barn. All we read is, there's one place we're sure he's not born, and that is the inn. Because there's no room there. Right? I mean, that's, that's the one thing. I mean, obviously, he's more in the out than he is in the inn. That part we can be sure of, right? But let's get this, I mean, let, let's kind of figure this thing out for a second. Walk with me on this. I mean, so here we have it. Joseph now has had to travel 100, 120 kilometers with this betrothed woman who's pregnant to meet a whole new batch of people and go, this is my bride-to-be. And how many times do you want to say that while she's looking like Frida? With all due respect to Frida. They're married. and anyway, so you, Okay, I mean, but, I mean, think about what that has to be like. And this is what Jesus is going to be a part of. But wait a minute, it goes beyond that. So here it is. He can't seem to find a place. And they still can't seem to find a place. And they still can't seem to find a place. And in all of this, she's, he's got a wife that's looking at him, kind of going, Honey, this is going to come out sooner or later. We really need a place for this. And he's trying, and he's trying, and he's knocking. He's, come on, it's got to be something. There really isn't a place. And there's not a place. And it's another day without a place. Where are they? They're in the Thousand Star Hotel. What's the Thousand Star Hotel? That's the one where you lay outside and you look up, and there's a thousand stars. This is a thousand star hotel, right? Now, as that's the case, it says the time came for her to give birth, and it's like, honey, I just can't wait anymore. It's just time to have a baby. And, and there's, there's, at that point, what do you do? You run, you try to find a place, you try to do whatever, one last shot, and it doesn't happen. But what if it is exactly like it, like it says it in here? One thing we read is that Jesus was born and then he was laid somewhere, right? We have two specific things, that he's swaddled and he's laid somewhere. Swaddled, by the way, that's what you do. You rub the babies with olive oil and salt, and then you cook them. For, no, I'm just kidding. And, then, and, and that kind of toughens up the skin. I'm sorry, that was unfair. And then you wrap them really tightly. Twice in Jesus' life, he'll be wrapped real tightly in linen. Twice. At his birth and at his death. I think that's interesting. Both times covered in, in ointment. Now, with that in mind, you're toughening up the baby, and as that's the case, she laid it, of course, in the strangest place, a feeding trough. 
And a feeding trough, by the way, is normally made out of stone. You're probably aware of that. One thing that Israel grows really, really well is rock. I mean, every place you look, it's like there's another rock farm. There's just rock everywhere. And that's one thing you can get plenty of. Wood, on the other hand, that's always been a bit tough, especially since throughout the ages there's always been things that have ravished all the trees. Now, so here's my question to you. You've got a feeding trough. Any of you raise animals here or have raised animals? Okay, Luke. Thank you, Luke. Let me ask you something. Where do you put the feeding trough? Do you put, I mean, let's just say if you actually shoved all your animals in a cave, would you put the feeding trough there? Probably close. I would imagine close, but you put it outside for a reason. And one of the reasons you put it outside, I've seen six mangers in Israel, as a matter of fact, in these last couple of weeks. And each one of them, by the way, that's not something you like to move very far because, well, they're really, really, really heavy. They burn out of rock. That's not light. And, and they're usually somewhere roughly about six yards away from some place that could be penned. And the reason is, is you want to make sure that they can, all the animals can get on all sides of it. It's one of the ideas of it. And the reason I say that is I, I kind of get the idea that just possibly, it's just as possible as any of the other things that we see in the cartoon somewhere next to Frosty and Rudolph, is the idea that it's quite possible that she just gave birth way out just out on the open somewhere. Which, by the way, which one of you ladies would want to volunteer for that? Now, this is a silent night. <laughs> Any of you ever been around when a woman's giving birth? There's no silent night about it. I'll do sing. And then the baby's there. And once the baby comes out, that's not a silent night either. And how do you sing that and have cattle? And uh, anyways, but so the, and that just says, I mean, and I, and, I, and I want to actually make it a little bit more real to us because there's something strange because if God actually tucked them away somewhere, the audience in Luke would never have come because you couldn't get shepherds into an inn. You're aware of that, right? And you couldn't, to be honest, you really couldn't get shepherds into much of a cave either. Shepherds were your, were, were the, well, to, even to this day, Bedouins are guys, I mean, they don't have a permanent address. I can tell you that the Bedouins, the most of them that live in southern areas of Israel, like in the wilderness of Judea, by the way, those guys, they're traditionally very, very staunch Muslims today, and they usually have several wives, and they all start at about 12, 11 or 12 is when they start marrying off these girls. I mean, it's its own community. But those kind of guys, when they enter into town, everyone's checking their pockets just to make sure. And I'm not saying that because that's who they are. That's just the natural suspicion for a group of people that don't have an address they kind of go from place to place no it's just kind of a little bit off about it and those kind of guys they, they tend not to show up in the town unless actually they're looking for something and, and but to put but I, the, the reason i say that is if jesus really wanted if god really wanted to interface with people like that he'd have to meet them where they were and if he were to put himself right in the heart of the city well actually if that were the case these guys never would have been able to come and see this baby they could have seen this great choir of angels. They could have been said, look at Gulf, you know, there's a star. And then, you, you know, just, I'm telling you, in the city of Bethlehem, you need to go there. And then they'd show up in town and people would be like, you're not welcome here. But to be able to put them out on a plane somewhere, you realize. And the reason I say that is, God hasn't just come down to save. God has come down to be with you. Saving is what it's going to take to get you there. But if God came down to be with you, the question is, how hard is he going to make, it, make you work to get there? The whole idea of this is God is in hot pursuit of you, and what he's looking for is your surrender. That's the beauty of this. And one of the most amazing things about Christmas is it shows us that God came in such a way that nobody could be intimidated except Herod. Now, and I think about how strange that would be for a man to be intimidated by a baby. If 
but actually I know a few guys that are quite intimidated by babies, so that's not that strange. And they definitely take over. I guarantee you, it doesn't matter what baby it is, they take over. It isn't, you don't own anything anymore in the house. But, but I do want to say this, that in the end of it all, we're going to have a small handful of reactions. And, and I would love to develop a million things, but for the sake of time and clarity, I just want to point out a couple really quick things. But in this situation, by the way, and I challenge you to read it and look, for your, look on your own, but these wise men, when they show up and follow the star, it says, when they arrived at the house. That's key. Because that tells me something. By the way, it also says, if we put all the pieces together, that when the time came, there's a specific amount of time when a boy is born that the woman can't get to a temple. She's not allowed to because she's considered ceremonially unclean. When that time is done, she offers a sacrifice specifically for her firstborn son. Now, if she has the money, then she can offer, basically, the, you know, the more money you have, the bigger the animal. If you really are just dirt poor, you, order, you, you offer two turtle doves because it's the only thing that's left. It's sort of a poor man's offering. Now, the, she has waited now nearly two months because that's how long it's going to take for her to make this sacrifice. And it tells us in Luke she offers two turtle doves. What does that tell me? That the, the kings couldn't have shown up yet. Because if the kings would have shown up, she would have had gold. She could have got a big fat cow to, to offer. But she didn't. At that point, it's just a poor man's sacrifice. That tells me something. Because God was not going to give her money at that moment because she didn't need it. Why did God have these guys show up? One thing's for sure. Because they needed to be funded... A, God needed to fund a trip to Egypt. Now, how are they going to get the money to get out and go to Egypt? Well, God funds that through a group, of, a group of men that show up with some gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But with that in mind, let me just say, and forgive me if I seem scattered. If you have a conversation with me, I'll be just as scattered with you. But I do want to say, as we, as we, point, as we sort of try to pull this together, let me just say there are a handful of reactions, and, and, and inevitably you're going to have one of those reactions tonight. I mean, one of those reactions was quite simple. That was Mary and Joseph. And that was that this baby was someone that I'm basically, you've now thrust into my life right now. And I just want to obey you in whatever way you want me to do. However you want me to deal with him, I want to do it. Now, you're going to be mocked. Your life is going to become a little bit more, to be honest, it's going to become infinitely more simple and complicated at the same time. And that becomes part of the joy of it. People are going to look at you completely different. And that happens when you actually follow Christ. I'm not just talking about, you know, silently proclaim Christ in a way that you hope you get out of hell but don't want to lose your friends. I'm saying where you really want to follow Christ, people are going to have a problem with that. And, you know, and I often say, people don't have a problem finding out that you became a Christian until they actually discover you became a real one. Well, there are going to be people like Mary and Joseph. But then there are also going to be people, to be honest, like Herod. And for Herod, Jesus is a threat. He's not just the Son of God. He's not just the Savior of the world. He's a threat. Because he's a threat because it's like, look at this is my world, this is my kingdom, I've got the whole thing established, and as I've got the whole thing established, don't you throw something in this that's going to muck up my thing, I've built this thing. And you know what? There are going to be people out there, and that's what's going to happen. And I don't want that to be you tonight, but it could be. Man, and you know what? I don't, it's like, look, at, you don't have to convince me Jesus exists. You don't have to even convince me that he died and rose again. You don't have to convince me any of that because that's not the issue. The real issue is, is that I really don't want Jesus because if I take Jesus into my life, I have to change. And I don't want to change. So he's a threat to you then. Is that what he is? You know, I mean, you're going to totally cramp my style. I have to stop. I mean, I can't sleep around anymore. I can't do drugs anymore. Listen, it's not about stopping things. God's not a God of Nazis. He's a God of instead of. I mean, you're trading in things that kill you for something that satisfies, that's transcending and is perfect for the one who loves you the way you should be loved, not the way you're cheapening yourself to try to get it. So in one case, you can go in obedience. In the second case, you can go and find Jesus a threat. 
And the third case, and to me this is the most amazing of them, is actually the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders, remember these, what happens ultimately is Herod's going to approach those religious leaders because he hears this news that these guys have been coming to town, right? And as it is the case, he goes, so where is this Messiah guy supposed to actually be born? And they say, well, Scripture says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. The most amazing thing is there's nowhere in the text that I read that any of these religious leaders ever go to Bethlehem to find him. And that's the strangest thing to me because actually they seem like they have the answers. They just don't go. So here's this fulfillment of Scripture. I mean, something that is so profound, something that is so supernatural, that is so miraculous, and yet in all of that, it's still irrelevant. And then let me ask you, is that the way you're going to deal with Jesus tonight? He's cool. He's interesting. He's even actually something supernatural and transcending, but he's still not necessarily relevant to my life. Well, that becomes the case with them. Or are you going to be like the wise men? The wise men who, by the way, follow, fall in worship. Because in the end of it all, you're going to give one of those answers tonight. Now understand, this baby is laid in a piece of rock that he made. That was carved, chances are, either by water that he caused to fall from the sky or by hands that carved it that he made. And he'd be laid in there, wrapped in linen that he caused to grow from the ground. Oil that he caused to grow from olive. Salt that he caused to be part of the earth. And I I can't help but think how profound that God would empty himself to learn Uh, To to learn how to walk. To learn how to pull him off and on. (coughs) To learn how to change his own. To learn how to engage people. To talk. To learn and to write. That God would empty himself that much. That he would choose actually not to know things so he could learn them so that you couldn't possibly say, you don't know how hard it is when I'm in school. You don't know how hard it is to be loved and not loved back. Oh, he knows that one well. Beloved, listen. What choice are you going to make tonight? Because Christmas is not about us giving gifts. It's about us receiving the one that was given 2,000 years ago. Everything else should revolve from that. So is he tonight a threat? Sure he is. He's a threat to everything that destroys you. But is it all right to let that go? Of course it is. Is he irrelevant? Not at all. You can try to make him irrelevant, but the bottom line is the only reason why I'm standing here is because he's transformed me. He's as relevant as anything could be. You know why? Because he's the savior of the world. Are you tired of walking around with the burden of your sins on you? Are you tired of that guilt? Are you tired of its power, its bondage? It's time to be set free. I'm going to pray a prayer, and the prayer is a simple one. It's a prayer accepting this gift who wanted to be approachable, who has no problem with you coming to him as faulty and as weak and as broken and as filthy as you are. You can can be my guest to come that way, but tonight, don't leave here the way you came. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you that you would meet us here. And and in this text, 
There's, I, I mean, I, I feel like we could spend six weeks on this beautiful text of how lowly you choose to make yourself just so that we could, so that we could come to you. And as you've always come down to deliver, to set free, to love on, we can't see that more clearly than we do here. You made yourself approachable. You made yourself, well, to be honest, you, just, you made yourself in a way that we have no excuse not to come to you because of who you've been, who you are. And I just pray tonight for every one of us, myself included, that everything in our life that we want to fight you over because somehow we think that you'll destroy things that we might think are fun, I pray you would show us the reality of what it is we'd be letting go of. Our death, our misery, our bondage, our, our grief, our burdens. Tonight we could be set free. God, I just pray right now, please, that there wouldn't be one person, even one person walking out of here. dismissing you because of the threat you could be to their life. I pray, Lord, that there would be no one here that would walk out thinking of you as irrelevant. And certainly on the streets, people in hot pursuit of their own destruction often think of you as, this is a fairy tale, irrelevant to their own lives. Lord God, please, bust through that nonsense, even in this room if there be any entertaining that concept. And show how beautifully relevant you are. I mean, the reason you came down here was to be so relevant. To be cloaked in skin like we are. To have blood flow through your veins like we do. How, less, how, how much more relevant could you be than that? To be tempted in every way, yet without sin. And to suffer the punishment of every horrible sinner. And God, I just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to each of us how relevant you are to us specifically, individually. And I pray that we would be as the wise men that would come and would hand over who we are and lay it before you. Gold for a king that you even promised in Scripture incense as you promised that they would come from the east and return with gold and incense frankincense and myrrh frankincense speaking of sacrifice in Leviticus and myrrh speaking of passion and here Lord God I pray you would commandeer us completely and so if there be any or many who have not accepted this gift of this son who would grow and would die on a cross to pay for all of our guilt and then raise again to offer us a new life, the new life. And tonight you recognize your need. I'm just going to pray a prayer and if I want you to listen closely. And if you agree at the end, I ask you just to give a simple and hearty amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, you know I'm a sinner. It's an old word because it's an old problem. All mankind has the same issue. 
And I recognize that there are times in my life where I would fight you over things that I think I have a right to that in the end are my own destruction. But that's why, Jesus, you came to die on the cross to pay for all of my destruction, all of my sins, all of my guilt. And I pray right now that you would take all of my guilt off of me, all of my burdens, remove them off my shoulders. The penalty and the power of sin, remove it from me, I pray. As you died to pay for all of my guilt and rose again to offer me a new life, not under sin's bondage anymore, but actually rather covered and engulfed in your love. So I say yes to that. I say yes to that gift of Jesus. I say yes to his love for me. And I say yes to, to whatever you have for me now. Be the architect of my reinvention. And I thank you. If you came to be with me, I want to be with you now. Have me, I pray, in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.